if you deprive yourself and deprive yourself and deprive yourself, eventually your primitive cave girl brain is going to win out. And you're probably going to reactively overeat more than you need just because your brain is ticked off and deprived. So if we kind of lean into it and say, let me just get some good balance going starting in the morning, include the right, you know, healthy kinds of carbohydrates, eat enough protein, like stay ahead of your hunger. Because we have this super unrealistic expectation around things like willpower, you know, which never favored human survival ever. No, no. We have a lot of smart people here in the Boston area. And I always tell them, just because you're really smart doesn't mean you can trick your primitive cave girl brain that's like several million years old. <laughs> not like what you're doing. Welcome to Cut the Crap with Beth and Matt, the world's number one no bullshit health and fitness podcast. Are you ready to cut the crap with your diet and exercise, get strong as fuck, and build a healthy relationship with food? Then you've come to the right place. Let's, Let's go. go. If you'd like to support us in the podcast, join our Patreon where you get exclusive content, which consists of monthly workouts you can do at home or at the gym, monthly challenges that are either strength, habit, or mindset-based, and access to over 100-plus low-calorie, high-protein, family-friendly meals. These are all designed by a professional chef who is certified in nutrition. These recipes are already in my fitness pal for easy fucking tracking. New recipes are also added each week. We believe that fitness is for everyone. So this is our way of getting you started on your health and fitness journey at a price most everyone can afford. So what the fuck are you waiting for? I'll see you on the Patreon. Hi, Hillary and Liz. How are you? Hi, Hillary. Hi, Hi, how are you? We are so excited to have you. Oh, we're excited, to, so be excited here. to be here. We're going to talk all things menopause, which I'm so excited about because I am going through it right now myself. And I know that a lot of people that follow me as well are too. And I am so excited to talk about like the myths that are spread about menopause and, you know, things like that. So good. If you'd like to first introduce yourself and tell us who you are and things like that. Sure. My name is Hillary Wright. I am a registered dietitian. I am, I have lots of jobs. Um, <laughs> I have a short attention span. So I do a little, they all involve getting in the trenches with people in really difficult circumstances. So I am the director of nutrition for the wellness center at Boston IVF, where I take care of mostly women, sometimes men uh, trying to conceive and having trouble. Um, I also work part-time at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, where I take care of people before, during, and after cancer care. And I'm a freelance writer. I wrote a book about a condition called PCOS, or polycystic ovary syndrome. And I wrote a book about diabetes prevention called The Pre-Diabetes Diet Plan, before I partnered up with Liz here on the Menopause Diet Plan. Amazing. Thank you, Hillary. Master You're of wearing all lots of hats. trades there. Yeah. <laughs> she she picks all the difficult topics. All the difficult <laughs> I'm good with stressed out people. Yeah. <laughs> right. So hi, um, Liz Ward and um, Hillary and I have actually known each other since college. We met in organic chemistry lab where we tried not to blow things up. Yeah. And we didn't. We didn't. Unsuccessfully. But, yeah. I mean, you know. So glad those days are over. Yeah. Um, did see patients for many years, for like 15 years. And then I started to do more nutrition communication. So I'm a writer and a speaker. And um, I've also written a book about pregnancy called Expect the Best, Your Guide to Healthy Eating Before, During, and After Pregnancy, and a woman's health and nutrition expert. Wow, love it. 
you're in the right place then because we love talking about this. Right. Yay. <laughs> so what made you two decide to partner up and, um, you know, basically start an Instagram page about menopause, considering you have all these trades? Well, we had forever been talking about doing a project together at some point um, because we've known each other for so long. And then, you know, life got in the way. I had three boys. She had three girls. And we first started talking about collaborating. I always it really dates it because we originally talked about a radio show that we would do someday Great. called <laughs> Shut Up and Eat. <laughs> nice. I love it. <laughs> but then, you know, time went by and then we both came to this point in our life where we were both starting to experience all the perimenopause stuff, which we were agreed that we thought the perimenopause stuff is actually more challenging than actually finally getting over the finish line. So, um, you know, we both had this women's health expertise. We we're both writers and we like to work together. So we found our project. It's it's they say write about what you know. So that's what we did. We also found a huge gap because when we were having issues and we were asking each other, is this happening to you? Is that happening to you? Because we went through perimenopause at exactly the same time. We couldn't find any, you know, like a good book or a good website or anything like that. So that was one of the reasons why we said, let's do the research ourselves and come up with what you know, we think as dietitians, as health professionals, as women's health experts would be the best advice for women, women going through the menopause transition. So there was a, just a total lack of resources. Yeah, there really was. And I feel like there's more and more resources coming out because of pages like yourself. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's because of us. I think menopause is, is not as taboo as it was before because now the celebrities have discovered mm. menopause. <laughs> it's having a moment. <laughs> it's having its moment. Okay. It'll be come out from the shadows and always be, a, you know, a, something that you can discuss openly as another stage of life. And, and we wanted to be the voice of science and evidence. Yes. The voice of internet hoo-ha that all it does is make all of this sound worse than it needs to be. Right. And more difficult than it has to be to, to eat decently. So yeah, we're all about the science. Yes. I feel that there's a lot of fear and scare tactics when it comes to the menopause and, you know, people, as soon as they turn 40, they're messaging me like, uh, oh my God, I'm so worried. I'm so scared. You know, I, I need to get a handle on this now. It's like, okay, let's settle down now. Yeah. It's okay. Um, and then there, there's a lot of language around that too. Mastering your menopause, mastering your metabolism as sure. if you have total control over your body, which you don't. When you're in your forties, that is a good time to think about the next phase of life that's coming up. It's great to kind of get your ducks in a row and clean up your act, if you will, however you can, so that when you start to go through the, those changes, which is basically, you know, a loss of estrogen, then you're better prepared. And, you know, Hillary and I feel sheepish sometimes saying that, you know, our menopause, perimenopause transition was not that bad. And we don't like to say that because everybody else is like, oh my God, you know, I can't sleep. I'm having mood swings. I'm having hot flushes. And everyone experiences it differently. But we have a sneaking suspicion that being in, you know, as good of health as you possibly can going into it may actually be helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think it's an important point to say, I mean, of course, when you're upset and suffering and disgruntled and pissed off about things that are affecting your life, you're more likely sometimes to be vocal about it. So I think to constantly talk about the perimenopause, menopause transition, like it's just hell on earth is really not helpful to people. So it's right. not 
denying that there aren't women that are really suffering Mm -hmm. and need resources and need help. But we are about trying to embrace the things you can actually have some influence over. And we really advocate for trying to get on that, you know, earlier, Mm -hmm. like starting in your early 40s, because if you try to sail through your 40s doing the same things that you did in your 20s and your 30s, uh, it's probably going to start playing out differently. So sometimes women don't really start thinking about this until, you know, menopause is just a point in time where you haven't had a period for 12 months. But perimenopause is, you know four to 10 years long, you know what I mean? And stuff is happening all throughout. And like I said before, Liz and I, you know, we complained a lot more about perimenopause than actually getting over the finish line. Yeah. And you don't even really know that you are in menopause, correct me if I'm wrong, until like after you haven't had a period for 12 months. So you can literally think you're still in perimenopause and then you haven't had a period and then you're done, but then into the next phase of, you know, postmenopause. I mean, some women will go, I have a friend who went 11 months without a period and then got a period. Oh my gosh, I would technically die. reset the clock. But, the, you know, the, you know, prior to menopause, your periods get all whacked out. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, things right change. Right and yeah. so people are, and that, again, that's, I think what I mean when I talk about, like, I thought that was much more miserable dealing with a lot of, you know, your periods go, you know, closer together, farther apart, heavier, lighter, you know, mm-hmm. everything is, it's like, puberty in the opposite direction. <laughs> what I heard from you there too, was you essentially being more proactive versus reactive right. with these, with, with this thing, right? Cause it's a lot harder to play catch up and take care of it when, when it's happening rather than just doing some things ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And you know, the average age of, of um, menopause is 51 to 52 ish in this country, but women who have some risk factors for heart disease, let's say higher cholesterol, higher blood pressure, they actually, in the Framingham Heart Study, reached menopause earlier. And you want to keep that estrogen for as long as you can. So in doing all the preventive measures, the things that you would do anyway, like to keep yourself healthy, you may actually go through menopause with fewer symptoms because you're healthier. But you may also, you know, get to that 51 to 52 year old mark of natural menopause. But things start happening way ahead. (laughs) Like one of the things we talk about in this book is some data from a study called the Swan study that found that the average woman starting in her like mid 40s gains about a pound and a half a year until about three years after menopause where it levels out. So that tells us that there are things going on related to this transition that start to affect calorie balance and make it easier to gain weight and all of that a lot sooner than you actually hit menopause. So again, a lot of our messaging is around like, you need to start looking far ahead of that to try to mediate some of that stuff, which is always going to be easier than letting the, you know, letting the horse out of the barn and then trying to like close the rain and back door. in. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and also realizing, like Liz said, like we have to, there's got to be some acceptance that you can't micromanage every aspect of this. Right. The fool's right. errand and all it's going to do is make you stressed out all the time. Yeah. So what are some things that women in their early forties, late thirties can start thinking about as they head into this time in their lives? Well, I think they need to know what's going to happen to their bodies or Mm -hmm. what may be happening even in their early 40s. And that's just some basics about the way the body's working, you know, going to work during your 40s. So you're going to have less less estrogen and um, less estrogen may mean that if you gain weight, it's going to go to your 
belly area. So there might potentially be more belly fat whenever, when you didn't have it. So um, also, are you strength training? Are you exercising regularly now during your forties? Make your muscle now, get your house in order, as I was saying, by um, making sure that you're getting enough of all the nutrients that you need as a woman who's approaching menopause, enough calcium, enough vitamin D, enough fiber, a low saturated fat diet. I can't believe you didn't say protein. Um, Protein. (laughs) We love protein talk. She thinks I'm obsessed. Wait for the P word. It's coming. Yes. The big P. Big P here. Yeah. Yeah. They're very big fans of protein. Oh yeah. Get your fucking protein. (laughs) (laughs) But really maybe like, like what you, what I see you guys doing with people and trying to get them to change the composition of their diet, like getting a lot of that refined carbohydrate out and making sure that there's enough complex carbohydrate and fiber and um, just the, you know, all the nutrients that you need getting, starting to get them now and like getting set so that when perimenopause does start, it doesn't throw you for a loop. Right. You said something interesting there too about carbohydrates and the refined carbs versus the complex carbs. What type of a role do carbohydrates have in the perimenopause? Well, okay, that's, really- your, that's your nutrient. That's her you obsessive nutrient. Oh, she likes the big C. <laughs> She's the P word. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so carbohydrates, you know, Liz and I, it, we'd be dating ourselves to say that when we became dietitians, fat was like public enemy number one. And then we realized it's not that fat is bad for you. It's about the, the two cues. It's the quality and the quantity. Where's it coming from? How much are you eating? It's the exact same thing with carbohydrates because carbohydrates provide glucose, which is the primary fuel for all of the cells in the body. And the, one thing I think that people don't often appreciate is even though our muscles use the most glucose because we have a lot of muscles, our central nervous system gram for gram burns twice the glucose of any other tissue in the body which makes sense because nature figured out, you know, your brain's the most important organ, fuel the brain first. So nature really tied our brain nervous system function very closely to our blood sugar levels. And it likes stability. It likes kind of reinforcement that the food supply is fine and the brain likes carbs. So if the brain is burning twice the the glucose gram for gram, when women start doing wacky things and, and demonizing all carbohydrates and cutting them all out, they often end up in this place where they're just thinking about them all the time because the brain doesn't like that. So we just say, listen, there is a huge difference between whole foods based carbohydrates, you know, mildly processed carbohydrates like Triscuits, whole wheat bread, you know, um, ultra processed foods are a totally different category. So, you know, those are foods for fun and people can occasionally do whatever they want. But, you know, at this phase in life, People have been kicking the can down the road in terms of their diet quality. Like, do you eat any whole grains? Are you adding beans to your diet? Are you taking the time to eat? Like, I see this all the time. Great dieters until about 4.30. And then the whole thing blows up because their brain is kind of irritated about the lack of carbohydrates. So the we talk a lot about trying to balance carbohydrates by educating people on the ones that have more nutritional value because they retain their fiber, they have vitamins and minerals, natural antioxidants, you know, all kinds of good stuff, pairing that with protein, lots of fruits and vegetables so that you feel satiated by the things that you're eating. But women are really prone to just thinking carbs of the devil and taking them all out. And it, you know, and I, I try to explain to them a lot and I, in both my populations, um, including the oncology, the cancer treatment people, like if you're not eating enough carbohydrates, 
your body's going to go after protein for calories. Like your body's burning protein for calories because protein's not protected by other sources of calories. You're basically throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So that's what balance is all about. Serve all needs by looking at these visuals that are pretty simple, but all provide an important kind of yeah. There's so much carb fear. I mean, just in the comments section alone, and, and I, I start to wonder, it's like, okay, people really feel that they have an aversion to carbs. No, I my body can't handle that. It's like, well, exactly what does that mean? Like, what is your body doing when you're eating these things? Maybe you can fill me in on some people that besides having celiac, what would be the reason why someone would have a reaction and it would there be a reaction to carbohydrates? Diabetes. Well, you know what I think? So this is another thing too. And sometimes it can be this like slippery slope between I feel this in my body and the risk of developing disordered eating. Mm-hmm. Like people oftentimes will say, well, when I eat carbohydrates, I get bloated. Right. That's a, that's a popular one. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Food circulation redirects your digestive tract and you're going to experience some distension in your abdomen. Like we always laugh about like when people talk about the tryptophan and the turkey at Thanksgiving, it's like, no, that's not what's making you tired. It's <laughs> your circulation is actually in your gut and not in your head, and your arms and your legs. So, I mean, I think people feel like the only normal feeling of a body is a body that has no food in it. And wow. you know, okay. a lot of times that when people over restrict and then they go at it because they're over hungry, carbs are what the brain wants. So if people wait until they're over hungry and then they overeat carbohydrates, and then maybe depending on the kind of carbohydrates, their blood sugar might kind of shoot up and then crash. And maybe that's what they mean. Like, I don't like that feeling. But all I know is that, you know, we talk to people and, you know, try to encourage people to focus on what can you add to your diet to, to improve the quality of your life and how you feel. People feel better in a lot of ways. And there's a lot less talk of I can't handle that. I can't handle that. But I always get nervous when people start like, oh, I, I can't handle carbohydrates. Like, like you said, what exactly are you talking about? Right. Like, mm-hmm. and their idea of carbohydrates might be potato chips or something too. Right. And instead exactly. of the complex yeah. carbs yeah. that were t- the good, the not going to say good carbs, but the healthier carbs. A cake. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Make feel good. Yeah. Right. Right. It's it's like, you know, the bagel video that I made, the amount of hate towards a bagel. They're like, well, you must have not eaten the rest of the day. I'm like, because, because I had a, 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 a freaking bagel. I mean, yeah. they're like, you must have yeah. had water and veggies. I'm like, actually, I had uh, a lot of other meals besides water and veggies. Yeah. She had a bagel for breakfast and it's kind people of went crazy. I know. I, I, you know, I love to lose their mind. Very about scary that kind of to stuff. me that people are that damaged about. It's very scary. It's sad, actually. Yeah. So much bandwidth on. Well, it's like a lot of things that happen on the internet. It it's dealing in the minutia rather than seeing the big picture. And I think it's human nature to to fixate on the details. And I think that that's hurtful. I mean, it's really harmful in terms psychologically and physically because there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating a bagel, whether it's whole wheat or white bread or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to see it all in the context of the entire diet, right? not just every single food that you put in your mouth. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot to my clients about proactive eating and reactive yeah. eating. You know, like if you deprive yourself and deprive yourself and deprive yourself, eventually your primitive cave girl brain is going to win out <laughs> and you're probably going to reactively overeat more than you need just because your brain is ticked off and deprived. 
So if we kind of lean into it and say, let me just get some good balance going starting in the morning, include the right, you know, healthy kinds of carbohydrates, eat enough protein, like stay ahead of your hunger, because we have this super unrealistic expectation around things like willpower, you know, which never favored human survival ever. No, no. We have a lot of smart people here in the Boston area. And I always tell them, just because you're really smart doesn't mean you can trick your primitive cave girl brain that's like several million years old. <laughs> not like what you're doing. For sure. And now you mentioned um, there, Liz, the, the white bagel and the, the the whole wheat bagel. I'm curious, is that when you look at somebody's diet, a client's diet or something, do you look at like if they're eating the the white bagels, do you try to suggest them to move towards the whole grain or do you, or you look at other ways of getting in like the fiber and things like that then there? That all depends, right? Yeah. Because the suggested intake for whole grains is at least three servings a day. And the minimum on a 2000 calorie diet, I'm just giving this, the, you this as a framework is six servings a day. So what the other three can come from, you know, white pasta, a bagel, or, you know, another refined grain, it, they can. But if all six servings came from refined grains, I'd say, you know what, there could be a way for you to work more of the whole grains in there. And we're not really encouraging whole grains just on the basis of fiber alone. I mean, they have a whole matrix of nutrients um, that I would want people to get. So again, it's all relative. And sometimes I think relativity is very hard and moderation is very hard to grasp, um, especially when all these facts are thrown at you all the time on the internet and you're trying to figure it all out. And the reason why I love your, your reels and everything that you say is because it's a similar message over and over and over again, which people have to hear. Yeah, they need repetitive. Yeah. Hear it. It's really necessary. So again, no, I wouldn't go picking on any single food unless I saw it on a diet recall, you know, all day long, every day. I'd say, well, you need some more variety here. Yeah. Variety. I also think people can think about how do I, you know, how do I eat my bagel? If I eat a bagel plain, am I hungrier sooner? If I eat my bagel with eggs or if I put peanut butter on it, or if I do things that give it more staying power, you know, maybe that will be helpful to me. I mean, the fact of the matter, if there's a meal, a good metabolically, a good meal to overeat, it's probably breakfast. Yeah. Oh God. Um, I mean, full of, of carbs. It could know. be full of carbs, but <laughs> because people don't, you know, it's real. I think it's difficult to get a lot of protein at, at breakfast. I think you have to make an effort. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. I don't, I don't mean impossible. Right. I mean, but you mm -hmm. do have to make more of an effort. I mean, it's not like you're going to eat four eggs, you know, at the same time, you have to come up with a variety. Like I see on your plate, Beth is all different kinds of things contributing to the, to the protein, but it can be done. Yeah. Little planning. Uh, yeah. A little bit of planning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen at a donut shop either. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it is like, well, what are you eating for breakfast? Well, I'm not really. So again, if we, I don't know, if we keep talking about bagels, is the issue is bagels or the issue is you're not really taking time to eat and then you're going through a drive through and this is what they have. And you don't like that fact that it doesn't last you very like, you know, these are the behavioral things around yeah. people eat as a result of behaviors. So that's what things like registered dietitians, just to give folks like us a plug, will actually sit down and, and talk to people about like, the first thing we do is tell me about your life. You're the expert in your life, not me. What are your goals? And, you know, let's look at this as a flight of stairs, not like a Monday morning, where we're going to pull the rug out from the whole thing. So, you know, the issues can be complex, but 
we live in a culture that likes good foods, bad foods. And, you know, we always tell people individual foods do not affect your health unless you have a bad allergy. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. That's one of those messages that we just need to repeat probably every episode. Just got to put that on there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's another thing that it's like when we do videos, it's like for general population, right? We're not giving individual people, but they will take it as, well, I'm sorry, but that just does not work for me. And there's no way that I can have that. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. Right. Then do something different. Yeah. Yeah, Do something different. (laughs) Crazy concept. (laughs) But the emotion takes away from the logic. It does. And of course, whenever people read things, they apply it to themselves immediately. And they have to kind of say, step back and say, well, this is general information. And how, how can I apply that general information to myself in a way that works for me. I had a a patient slash friend once tell me he was dabbling in different kinds of apps to try to, you know, see he's just a tech guy and he likes this sort of thing. And he was finding himself in groups, like online groups with people who were kind of had a lot of serial dieting experience, kind of chronic, you know, weight loss, losing, regaining, losing, regaining. And he made this really interesting comment. He goes, it's unfortunate that so many people are kind of like, preloaded with grenades about different topics in this area, just waiting for something to set them off. Mm-hmm. Dieting culture has done a number on a lot of people. So a lot of times what we're seeing is, you know, people's reflection of almost like trauma around going yeah. through times. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, for midlife women, they are coming to that point in their life where they may have had years or decades of experience with different diets. And now um, they are really behind the eight ball in a lot of ways because, you know, you're aging at the same time. So you have that going on. And the whole weight control thing is a little bit different or a little bit traumatic, but it can bring up all those feelings, all the past dieting stuff. Um, And it can really inspire disordered eating and crazy diets and, you know, starving yourself to try to get your 30 year old body back, which is not going to happen. Unrealistic. Sad. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, being 40, 50, you're just consistently looking back at the 18 year old you that, you know, you're not going to be that again, but you have this vision and I I've been there. You've had a few kids, you know, life passes by. We're just not going to be that 18 year old body, but we have to focus on becoming better, um, where we are today. Right. And I mean, we're all about health. We, Mm -hmm. appearance is nice. If you look great and you feel good, that's good. But we're talking about setting yourself up so that you can live um, the next 30 to 40% of your life, which the average woman does live 30 to 40% of their lives after menopause in a healthful way so that you feel good and that you avoid or at least minimize chronic conditions that are, that do, yes, occur with aging, but are exacerbated by menopause, such as heart disease and uh, bone disease. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that, actually. So yeah, I didn't realize there was like a connection there. Yeah. Let's, let's get into the um, heart disease and bone disease after menopause. And what can we do to help prevent that? Well, there are two conditions that are, I think, very much related to the drop in estrogen. And as you said, they are heart disease and um, osteoporosis or bone disease. And the reason for that is because when your estrogen levels go down, 
Um, several things happen that can affect your heart health. Um, your blood vessels become stiffer, so your blood pressure may rise for no no other reason except for a loss of estrogen. Um, your cholesterol level may increase, particularly your LDL or bad cholesterol, and that is associated with um, more clogging of the arteries. So. Okay. Women have, yeah, women have like a 10-year grace period as compared to men in terms of, you know, when heart disease becomes an issue. And uh, that's because of estrogen. And um, when it comes to bone disease, same thing. I mean, as soon as your, your you know, menopause happens, like there's a huge loss of bone tissue in the first five years after menopause. But if you have a lot of bone tissue, if you've been doing all the right things up until that point, that's how you, you mitigate it. Same thing with heart disease. If you've been exercising and your blood pressure is good and your weight is good and your, you know, stress is okay, you're managing it. At least you go into that phase of life in a much better position. Mm -hmm. So it, it comes back to, again, starting a more awareness earlier because, uh, you know, that whole a pound of prevention or an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know, kind of trying to nurture some healthy habits that include this eating that we're talking about, as well as like the strength training. We're huge fans of that. Mm -hmm. It's the only card that women have in their deck as we go through this transition to influence our metabolic rate, you know, 24 hours a day. Plus physical activity is the most natural insulin sensitizer that exists insulin resistance, which becomes more common as we get older is what causes type two diabetes. So, you know, physical activity, I mean, and all this stuff is good for your brain. Let's, you know, not forget about that, you know, risk of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. So from our perspective, a lot of this is quality of life. Like Liz was saying, if you're going to live 30 to 40% of your years, doctors are real good at keeping you alive, but that doesn't mean your quality of life right. is great. If yeah. You end up on a bunch of medications to try to manage this stuff, but there's a lot of disability associated with lack of vision. You want to live your best life during those years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so there's no guarantees ever, but this is a pretty good odds game to play um, that if I eat healthfully and I, I actually, you know, again, Liz and I talk a lot about oftentimes people, we like to focus on what can you add to your diet to, to improve your health. So we would say like, so let's look at your fruit and vegetable intake. You know, in our experience, a lot of times people say, oh, I eat fruits and vegetables. And I see it all the time in these questionnaires that I give my private practice people, like how many fruits and vegetables do you eat in a day? And then I start talking to them about what they're eating. And I'm like, where are those fruits and vegetables? <laughs> like two to four a day. So they'll be like, oh, I did lettuce in my sandwich and I had, you know, tomato sauce on my pasta. So, you know, we would say, well, you know, kind of the low rung for Fruits and vegetables is, you know, two servings of fruit, three servings of vegetables-ish. So why don't you just maybe think about if you don't eat fruit every day, try to eat one a day with a long-term goal of eating two. But I don't like I don't like veggies or fruitless. You don't? <laughs> no. I'm kidding. It's never too late. <laughs> I've seen like, yeah, your food. Wait a minute. No, I've seen um, you eat them. But this is what someone will say to me is what I'm saying. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. What do I do if I don't like veggies? We have a solution for that. You can say anything to us and we will come up with the plan B, C, and D for Ooh, you. So, I love that. Yeah. The biggest one is if you're not dead yet, you're not too old to try something new. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you didn't like yes. overcooked broccoli when you were five. Yeah. You know, at your grandma's house doesn't mean you can't try it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> add, some, add some seasoning in there. And it a different right. way. Right. It's okay to put fat on your vegetables. It's okay to roast them. I think I 
high roast mm-hmm. every vegetable known to man. It's just so good that way. So easy. It, they're it so easy. Air and, fry. Yeah, or air fry. And um, you put them in with, uh, you know, olive oil and yes, a little bit of salt. Yes, a tiny bit of salt, you know, and and you eat them, right? Or you might eat a double portion of something that you like. I'm telling you, we have tricks for everything. I love it. And I like you said the salt because the salt brings out the natural flavor in it a little mm-hmm. bit then too. So you're yeah. just, they're just not properly salting and seasoning their food. Right. I mean, in cooking, salt is a flavor enhancer, right? So we learned right. this in quantity food production. <laughs> in it's college. a flavor enhancer. <laughs> and ultra processed food, it's a got to look put a lot of salt in it because we took the natural flavors out. <laughs> you know, so if people you know use it their, on their own, you know, in their own kitchen, and uh, it's usually fine. Yeah. yeah. Plus, there's other things you can use. Like I'm a huge fan of vinegar. Vinegar has no salt in it. It adds a lot of flavor to things. Lemon. Lemon. We had some um, sauteed broccoli with garlic and lemon the other day. Perfect. Wow. That sounds amazing. It does. Yeah. Might have been scallions. Can you do a little stir fry with that? Mm-hmm. We'll make uh, lots of cooked vegetables and eat it with pasta. Like if we have pasta, we'll eat a lot of vegetables with it because it makes it easier to not eat two plates of pasta. <laughs> um, it improves the nutritional quality. But I'm really spoiled. My husband cooks a ton uh, at this point in life. He cooks more than I do. That's okay. Little yeah, nice. soul of, um, of, you know, and he's well trained. He knows fun. what to do. <laughs> beans are a vegetable. And a lot of times people don't think that beans and lentils count as vegetables, but they actually do. So, um, one of the yeah. highest fiber things you can eat. Yeah. Agreed. So I remember the thing I put on my face, my uh, Instagram page, uh, somebody, a can, a can of chickpeas. And I had a, a another healthcare professional who will go unnamed, sent me a message about, you know, I'm wondering why you're recommending people eat processed food. I'm like, canned beans are processed foods. Yeah. Get your Every, orthorexia off my face. <laughs> yes. Every yeah, food yeah. is processed to some degree. I mean, it's touched by another human being for the most part. It's fine. It's fine. And they're so accessible, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cheap, accessible. People like soak their own beans overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, I right. forget. You know, no, I live on. I mean, it's not that you can't do that, but you know, those are those are examples of things that make decent eating feel way too hard. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't unfairly to- demonizing foods, and yeah, because it doesn't take into consideration people's financial status, you know, how much time they have, or anything like that. Exactly. You're exactly right. Or where they live in the country. Like, for example, um, you know, we're spoiled because we live in New England and we can get fresh fish. Right. We got uh, I think I got fish off the boat from Gloucester yesterday. And, you know, what if you live in Kansas, you know, canned fish, canned salmon, canned tuna might be the way to go. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. Mm -hmm. God help the wild salmon. If all people did was eat the wild salmon, (laughs) there would be none left. (laughs) seriously i mean talk about its sustainability you know i mean yeah yeah again it doesn't need to be so hard yeah exactly and you know that you can have dried fruits you know that counts um frozen vegetables we're huge fans of plain Mm -hmm. frozen vegetables and fruit um especially around here in the winter oh you know you can't really get a lot of great stuff but what we have our wild blueberries you know from maine and we have the frozen cherries and things like that so there's absolutely zero wrong with that and that's an easy way to use what you what you need and not waste anything I always have a giant bag of a family size bag of frozen broccoli browns from Market Basket. Oh, yeah. In my mm, freezer to try that. And you just throw them in a bowl. Don't add water or anything. You put them in a glass bowl. You put a plate over it. You zap it for two or three minutes and then you throw in an omelet. 
sauce and some pasta. Yeah. You got a five minute meal. You know, frozen vegetables are, they're just as healthy. I mean, there's no nutritional loss there. Again, we're talking about frozen vegetables, not things necessarily swimming in salty cheese sauce (laughs) all the time. Occasionally you can do whatever you want, but totally doable. Absolutely. I'd like to talk about intermittent fasting and menopause. Okay, let's go. Why that is going around. <laughs> so so is, is there validity to? Well, where it's most relevant is for people that are at risk of diabetes because time of day affects how sensitively people's bodies use insulin to regulate their blood sugar. And so I think there's, it's actually a good thing that they're starting to pay attention to circadian rhythms and things like that because like, 25 years ago, you know, I was observing, wow, the people that I take care of, you know, who are trying, you know, are struggling with their weight often actually don't eat that much. And then I started to realize a lot of it was not eating much during the day, but then, you know, making up for it later in the day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't, I don't think there's enough evidence for us to know how much of the effectiveness of Mm -hmm. like we're fans of extended time, you can call extended time fasting, whatever it is, eating enough during the day. So you can hopefully eat dinner and most of the time give your body a break for, you know, 11 or 12 12 hours, hours. you know, so your body, I mean, cause that's the way it always was. I mean, you know, throughout history, people weren't eating at midnight, you know, like they are now. And so bodies are more oriented to use insulin and metabolize carbohydrates, for example, more sensitively during the, you know, the sunnier hours of the day. Um, So I think there is certainly for people who are at risk of diabetes or prediabetes, there's a case there. For the weight loss thing, it looks to me like the evidence is mixed. And I suspect a lot of it is if you just stop eating after dinner, boom, you just cut a chunk of calories out of your diet. Yeah, people right. upset with us when we say don't eat after dinner. I mean, they really could. Some people come at us. And this is the reason why we say that, because it is the simplest thing you can do. You don't have to intermittent fasting, you know, and not eat dinner with your family because you already ate, you know, everything you're supposed to eat by three o'clock. It's more livable. And we say that and people are like, oh, well, if you're hungry, you should eat. Well, it's like, we didn't say that. We said that you should eat enough during the day, especially at dinner, you know, enough protein so that you feel really satisfied, protein and fiber, some fat, that you feel satisfied and you really are not eating after dinner. The snacks aren't a requirement. Right. It works. Yeah, you're right. It, 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 it actually works. Yeah. I love to eat at night. That's like, I, I would love it if I could have like a big bowl of ice cream and a brownie every single night. But <laughs> Oh, God. But I can't because as you get older, your calorie margin becomes thinner. And I just am not moving enough around enough during the day, like running, you know, 10 miles a day to do that. So I can't do that. So you you have to make those choices for yourself. The thing about intermittent fasting is that, yeah, um, some people don't eat at night, but some people push that to like, they start eating at, you know, 12 o'clock. Yeah, that, that is a total, I mean, so if you're going to get really get into that's the, the most common one, right? On, yeah. Yeah. Like 12 to eight, mm-hmm. which is really, so I, I'm satisfied after like 30 something years of reading research on this, mm-hmm. that people should eat in the morning. You know, there's a, a decent amount of evidence suggesting that eating a good breakfast may set the stage for your hunger management throughout the day. It's a good opportunity to get some protein and fiber and healthy stuff into you. And, you know, if you don't eat enough during the day, why would your brain not be hungry and want you to continue to eat? I think a lot of people are eating after dinner because they're under eating during the day, but like face 
we are living in stressful times. A lot of people are eating after dinner because it's relaxation. Yeah. Or it's the transition to the more relaxing time of the day, or it's a mindless eating in front of the television. So again, that's the the behavioral part of it. You know, what are you eating because you're really hungry? Are you eating because it's soothing your nerves somehow? So to some extent, we all do that, you know. I mean, like food, we're supposed to it's delicious. But if it, you know. Somebody has a behavioral pattern of using food as the way they get themselves, you know, talk themselves off the ledge. And that's something that they would likely benefit from talking to somebody about to learn how to deal with their stress and anxiety in ways that don't better coping mechanisms be the go to. And often that happens at night. But Beth, you asked why, like, why is it so popular with menopausal women? I just think it's um, partially. desperation, vulnerability, and they want a quick fix. They don't know how to control themselves mainly. So they're just going to give themselves an arbitrary cutoff. Um, The other thing, you know, in terms of eating, the other thing that is, you know, the thing about intermittent fasting that we always say, it's about when you eat. It's not about what you eat. No one's giving you any guidance about what you're eating. So if you're going to eat for just six hours out of the day, you better make damn sure that all Quality. nutrients, right? Right. That all of your protein is there. It's all hard to get. And if you're, you know, skipping breakfast, I don't know, try to like eat like 80 grams of protein at 4 p.m. is <laughs> I've seen difficult. one person, one person who I thought the total quantity of healthy food that they were eating was not suffering because they were eating in an eight hour window. Mm-hmm. I've seen it one time. And that's because she, in her eight hour window, she was eating a 10 and six. She was eating three meals. She was still having one or two snacks with protein. Like you never see that. So intermittent fasting is a really good example of something that takes something with some real valuable aspects to it. Like trying to align our food consumption and metabolism of food with our body's natural rhythms but people always have to then crush it into something that's unsustainable. Like, okay, you're going to fast every other day. It's like, do you know what a fast is? A fast is less than 25% of your calories for the day. Who's going to do that every other day? Who's going to do that even two days a week? Plenty of women do that. They do it and then they go crazy on the other days it's, and they just eat whatever they want. It's just not sustainable. And so well, it's not know. healthy. I mean, it's wicked unhealthy because, you know, how are you getting enough calcium? How are you getting enough protein? How are you, how are you getting enough anything unless you're loading up with supplements and powders and things like that? So we're not big fans, but like Hillary said, it has a nugget of you know, interesting science behind it, but there's really no evidence that it you have to do it to lose weight. You can just cut calories gradually every day and come out with the same result. I, I would say too, that I've never seen anybody, you know, eat from eight to four forever, be able to not eat dinner with their family. I know. That's what eventually yeah. kills That's it. That's a really important aspect there. I can't eat with my family. It's like, okay, so is that sustainable? No. Is, is that good for your relationship? No. Are you there to like model healthy eating for your kids, like family meals? Can you imagine like, you know, you're the mom and everyone's sitting there eating. Like, sorry, I can't eat with you guys. Oh, insane. I mean, as a child, I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with mom? (laughs) (laughs) Mom is starving. Oh my God, what's happening to her? (laughs) What's the matter with mom? Which a lot of teenagers are saying anyway. You don't need to give them more ammunition to question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I even talk to my fertility patients about this, you know, very sensitively, of course. But, you know, we talk about, you know, wanting to have a baby is a really motivating time. It can be paralyzingly stressful, but it can be a very motivating time. 
And then it's a good time to stop practicing the way you're going to want to model for your kids because kids learn to eat with their eyes. And by that, I mean, they watch you. So you can say whatever you want about, I'm going to eat this, but you guys, I might hear a lot like, my kids eat great. Oh no. While they're doing something really dysfunctional with food. I'm like, you know what? Kids have eyes too. Oh yeah. So, you know, we, it's just, again, it's a lot of it is dealing with the trying to develop a more healthy relationship with food and behaviors that you're basically eating decently, but you're still living an enjoyable life. Right. Yeah. It's all about the behaviors and the two big things that I've heard here about our diet is the behaviors. So our relationship with food and how we're, how we're behaving around it. And then adding things into your diet too, and not taking things away or, or restricting things. Right. But not even just your diet, but that's your lifestyle too, with quality movement, maybe daily walk or more strength training, perhaps if you know, you're not doing that currently. Cause as you were talking about earlier, you know, that's going to help with the, your, your bone density and, and sarcopenia, losing muscle mass and things like that. And, and more, more health benefits, of course. Yeah, I think at midlife, women can get really overwhelmed by all the things they should do. You know, um, you should do this and this and this and this. And it's a lot, Um, especially if they've kind of sailed through their 30s and 40s without a weight problem. They didn't think too much about it. They exercised a little bit on and off. And then all of a sudden, bam, you know, they have all these issues and and diet and exercise could actually help them help them out. So you just start where you are and do what you can with your time and your resources and your your mental attitude towards it. So we're we're not saying, oh, everybody do, you know, these new 10 behaviors because you can't. It's right. too much. And you'll start where you're at. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, if you are eating healthfully most of the time. So like even the the USDA that makes the dietary guidelines, I was reading something that that said if 85% of your calories are coming from foods that are bringing along some good nutritional attributes, we all have about 15% of our calories, you know, to kind of mess around with. Those fun foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, because we're we're supposed to like food. I like food. Right. I think we all like college. But no matter what, no matter what your weight is, if you're eating healthfully and you're physically active and you're making a reasonable attempt to get a decent amount of sleep and you're socializing with other people and doing all these things we know are good for people, you're going to be a healthier person no matter what your weight is. Like we have evidence yeah. to tell us people with pre-diabetes who start exercising, even if they don't lose an ounce, are much less likely to develop diabetes. So we have to try to disattach the value of healthy eating and exercise to weight so much. Thank you. Exactly. There's there's so many other things going on that can affect how you feel in your body, no matter what your weight is. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That's a hard concept for people to wrap their heads around though. And that's because for the longest time, you know, the last few decades, especially with diet culture in the nineties, especially your, your health and your worth was equated to your weight. Yeah. And it still really is a lot. So those are the, those are the women that are becoming perimenopausal now. So they've kind of grown up with that. I mean, I'm not going to say we didn't grow up with that. We definitely did. I mean, my mother was always on a diet and I know your mother. No, my mother did too. Oh, your mother did too. Oh, Oh, okay. Six kids. And you know, she'd make us this delicious dinner and she'd have like the lump of cottage cheese, you know, dry burger and like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, my mom too. Oh my God. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. She's not, I mean, she's, you know, she's 85 yeah. and she's in great shape and she's not scarred, but you know, she, I remember looking at ladies magazines back in those days, yeah, women's day. I'm like, I'm like, mom, what are these little chewy things called AIDS? Yeah. AIDS. That? Uh, yeah. My little AIDS. They, they were like to, speed. They were like, de- they, they had like, like caffeine in them or like, something. Yeah. Like no-dose type stuff. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Diet things. Yeah. But they were like candy. They tasted good. I mean, I, I ate one or a couple. I mean, and you know, not to shit on cottage cheese. Cause like we really love cottage cheese. Like that is one of our favorite foods, but eating it for dinner every night when your family's eating other things. Oh, and- I know. Cottage cheese and pineapple was my mom's thing. And oh. or she put the cottage cheese in the cantaloupe. And I was like, that's all you're eating right now. That that was her meal. Like, like I love that for a snack or, yeah. or as yeah. a side yeah. to my meal. <laughs> I actually had it for lunch today. It's like one of the the quickest lunches that I can do. I'm like, oh God, lunch. Oh, what am I going to eat? And I will say yeah. though, it's the most emotional food. We've it had. really I just, I told you this. I've been talking to people for 30 <laughs> years about what they eat. And you say cottage cheese. They say and some of them will go like, oh my God, I love it. And others look at you like <laughs> you just shoved a hot poker in their eye. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I love it. Definitely see too. people that just get grossed out by the even thought of it. Some people are textury people. Yeah. yeah. The same people don't like hummus and they might not like yogurt. Yeah, because it's we don't know. We shoot. can't identify with those no. people, but um, <laughs> we get it. Yeah, totally. I'd like to actually quickly talk about supplements during menopause. And I personally used to be like a supplement addict, obsessively buying supplements for no apparent reason other than, you know, thinking they're going to be like the next best thing for me. And they never were. But that's a question that I get asked a lot. Is there any supplements that people should be taking women, for example, during menopause? Yes. But, you know, as you know, nutrition is relative and uh-huh. so is supplement use. So right. let me start with the biggies, which is probably calcium and vitamin D. If you're not getting the equivalent of like four dairy servings a day, you probably need calcium. So, and that doesn't mean you need all of your calcium as a supplement, it means you have to kind of sit down maybe with a dietitian or maybe with yourself and figure out how much you need based on your your calcium consumption from food. Vitamin D, yes, right? Always because it's next to impossible for anybody of any age really to get all the vitamin D they need through. I started supplementing with that within the last month, actually, because the dietitian on my team was like, Matt, I don't care if you think you're getting enough from your diet and your lifestyle, mm-hmm. you're not. You're not. Especially right. being in Ohio. <laughs> Human beings are supposed to get it from sun exposure, right? Mm-hmm. And evolution's slow. Our body still thinks we're Stone Age people, you know, mm-hmm. running around naked close <laughs> at the, to the equator. equator. And we're not. So right. anybody who lives above the latitude of like Los Angeles, Atlanta, yeah, or something, and, and, and DC, you know, yeah, does not get enough sun sun exposure. If you wear sunscreen, like we're told to do, that blocks vitamin D synthesis. So Given that human beings aren't supposed to eat it as much as synthesize it, that's why low levels of vitamin D are extremely common. Extremely common. So that all of that speaks to bone health, but also uh, just overall body health with vitamin D. That's a that's another whole podcast. I think and, and vitamin D yeah. levels definitely right now, right now, lowest in the mo- month of March. Okay. So the other really? um, supplement that I would recommend that really doesn't so much have to do with being, you know 
menopausal would be omega-3 fats. You know, I mentioned that the risk for heart disease does go up. And if you're not eating fatty fish, you know, twice a week, you should probably consider taking omega-3s. Again, not huge doses. So you know, none of these things have to be huge doses. You just have to get enough. Vitamin B12 is an issue for all people over age 50 because of a condition called atrophic gastritis, which becomes more common. And what that means is you can't cleave the or break off the vitamin B12 from things like meat or um, fish or any other animal food as well as you did when you were younger. So the recommendation is actually to get half of all your B12 from synthetic sources. So that could be fortified foods or um, supplements. So that could okay. be part of a multivitamin mm -hmm. too. So, multivitamin. and that helps prevent nerve damage, um, which is, you know, irreversible. So we want to protect our nervous system. Particularly important if people are taking a meprazole, a prilosec all the time, those kinds mm -hmm. of things for reflux um, interferes with B12 absorption, as does a medication called metformin, which is a kind of first line diabetes drug. Both can create vitamin D, uh, B12 deficiencies long-term Yeah, if you don't supplement. And this is something you don't really hear a lot about, but we're like huge drug diet, you know, interaction people. We, we talk about it in the book a lot and we say, you've got to ask your pharmacist. You've got to ask, well, don't ask your doctor. I would no, say ask, ask your pharmacist. Yeah. The pharmacist will either know or look it up. So it all depends. And then there was a really interesting study about um, a daily multivitamin, which really was... Um, you know, not over the top in terms of nutrients, like a hundred percent or less of the daily value, helping to actually preserve cognitive function. So taking a daily multivitamin. So, you know, it, again, it all depends on the way you eat. If you skip an entire food group, you definitely need either a multivitamin or whatever you're leaving out from the that particular food group. If you're a vegan, you definitely need supplements. And they don't compensate for poorly balanced diets. No. They're supplements. They can fill gaps, but the supplements. Thank you. Yep. Seriously, yes. don't. Good to know. They don't. It's show just that value. a supplement, right? Get your ducks in order first. Master the basics, you guys, with your fruits and veggies, and then right. Eat, right. eat your fiber. You know. Mm -hmm. And speaking of fruits and veggies, you know, you really can't take so many of the benefits that occur in fruits and veggies in a pill, like you can't right. get a pill of phytonutrients, which are mm -hmm. plant compounds that occur only in plants. And you really need to eat the food, the food, the matrix of the food is really the bulk, you know, I yeah. mean, there are tens of thousands of these mm -hmm. compounds and plant foods, these phytonutrients, they give plants the color and their smell and their taste. And they, they combine in countless combinations and in individual different foods, which is why we say, eat it, you know, eat according to the rainbow, eat a variety of colorful fruits and vegetables, as opposed to eat your isocyanates and your resveratrol. <laughs> you know, like, again, it comes down to Simplifying two it. servings of fruit, three servings of vegetables, yes. vary it up by season. Maybe that'll it'll make them taste better. But the, these phytonutrients cannot be shoved into a pill. And, and I think it's worth noting that there is some research to suggest that individual high doses of certain nutrients may not be helped, may not be safe and may not be helpful. So just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good for you or safe. That's always kind of blown my mind when I see some of these multivitamins that have 500% of your daily value. I'm like, why? Like, what? Why? Exactly why? It gives, it gives people peace of mind, but you know, a lot of that money would be better spent on produce 
Mm -hmm. So and also we, we should talk about probiotic supplements as well. We do not think that you should be taking, you know, going out to CVS or Walgreens or Walmart or whatever and getting probiotic supplements right off the shelf. There isn't a lot of science behind them, but they are strain specific. And what I mean by that is that there is some research that says that certain strains, certain types of probiotics are beneficial for certain conditions. And, you know, there's absolutely no consensus about what a perfect gut is, mm -hmm. but in search of a perfect gut, which, you know, everybody seems to be, they're grabbing all these supplements off the shelf and not, you know, not eating enough fiber or not eating enough um, yogurt. Health supplements are huge. Yeah, they yeah. really are. And you know what? They can actually mess with the community of microbes. Well the, well, the hype like is way ahead of the science. You know, like if you say, oh, I've got a problem, I'm going to go to Whole Foods and try to get a probiotic. It's really like where, from. I mean, there are some individual specific conditions where certain strains have been beneficial right? for things like antibiotic-induced diarrhea, C. diff infections and things. Yeah, irritable a lot of people disease. are kind of like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. which one of these? But people are just going, running to the CVS and buying probiotics because without any of these conditions that you speak of, you know? Exactly. I mean, it just, you know, it's it's a crapshoot. Yeah. <laughs> Hillary, no Hillary pun intended. Maybe that's not the best word. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I love it actually. <laughs> right. But you also, um, Liz mentioned the book that you guys wrote together. Yeah. Um, could you tell us about that? Sure. It's called The Menopause Diet Plan A Natural Guide to Managing Hormones, Health, and Happiness. And it's got some guiding principles in it, you know, um, many of which we talked about today. Eat according to your circadian rhythm as much as possible. Eat a balanced diet that's mainly plant-based, but not devoid of animal foods. Get enough protein. We've designed it so that it's higher in protein because as we get older, we need more protein and we want to make sure women are getting enough protein. It's not low in carbohydrate. It's moderate in carbohydrate. And we encourage people to eat carbohydrates because we love them. And, you know, it's also about fun. You know, we we don't want to take anybody's fun away. This is not a terrible time of life. We just want everyone to be, you know, healthy from here on out. So we wrote a um like Hillary wrote a, a chapter on on cancer. Menopause doesn't cause cancer, but women are aging and age is a risk factor for cancer. So they want to know about that. We have a chapter on brain health, a chapter on heart health, a chapter on diabetes, um, okay. a chapter on weight management. Just That's the last chapter. Supplements. But yeah. then, it, you know, at the end, we pull it all together and just show people, see all these diseases we just talked about? Mm -hmm. They're all benefiting from this plan. And again, single it goes back single to this. Diet. Yeah. This balance play with my, my brother-in-law, David Parmentier, who's a graphic artist extraordinaire, drafted up this plate for us. And it's, it's like a simple visual. These are infographics, like a, a picture of a plate that, you know, is cut in half and then cut in half again on one side. You know, half the plate is fruits and vegetables. Though we separate them out, give people ideas, a quarter, some sort of protein, a quarter, some sort of healthy carbohydrate. And healthy the healthy fats. fats. Yeah. And then you put you know, that but, in there. But these things look simple, but they have a ton of science embedded in them. It's just people eat off of plates. They don't eat off of pyramids and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, again, and there's lots of recipes, most of which are Liz's amazing incarnations and uh, <laughs> lots of examples of, you know, snacks. And, you know, we try to make it doable where the rubber hits the road. Sounds great. Where can yeah. people find your, your book? Anywhere books are sold. Yeah. On Amazon or okay. 
It's in bookstores. I've seen it in bookstores. So. <laughs> Look at that. Awesome. <laughs> That's going to be a cool film. Yeah, actual hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> well, congratulations on the book. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. If uh, our listeners would like to learn more information about you, where could they head to to, to do so? So on that three social media platforms that we're on, um, we have the same name across all of them. So on Instagram, it's um, Menopause Diet Plan. On TikTok, it's Menopause Diet Plan. And on Facebook, it's Menopause Diet Plan. Just there we to go. keep it simple. Okay. So you guys are on TikTok. Yeah. All right. No dancing. There. Yeah. No, dancing. no dancing. <laughs> we don't no dance dancing. Either. We don't dance either. Yeah. No. <laughs> we're strictly against dancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not against it. We're just against it in public. For ourselves. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On TikTok. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say Instagram was it, is the best place. So menopause diet plan on Instagram. Okay. Over, ask us questions. We'll talk to you. And you yeah. guys are located in Boston. Yes. Awesome. Very cool. All right, ladies, thank you so much. And we will we will see you soon. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So why not share it with a friend who needs to hear it? Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at cutthecrappod at gmail.com and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cutthecrappodcast. As always, we appreciate you and thanks for being here. <laughs>